Welcome to episode five of the Merit Mindset Podcast. I'm Devin Merritt, your host, and I am thrilled that you're with us today. Again, thank you very much for coming back with us. This is going to be kind of an interesting uh, conversation that we're having with each other because we're going to be um, kind of antagonizing some uh, fundamental perspectives of uh, Western thought as we consider the concept of happiness. Um, last time we were discussing the psychology of expectation and uh, how there's potential there to hinder a person's overall well-being. And as you can guess, uh, through the title of this episode, we're talking about Should I Be Happy Part 2. Part 1 was kind of geared towards um, laying the foundation of some of these problematic um, expectations that we have uh, for ourselves that ultimately lead us down some paths that uh, make us more unhappy than we would be um, had we had no expectation at all. Again, this is not like a perfect philosophy. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to hear this claim, and they're going to take serious issue with it. And that's just fine. But at least uh, bottom line, and most importantly, at least for me, is that we're thinking about these things. And who knows, maybe having this other perspective of expectations and happiness will help us be um, a little happier uh, when we're not happy. So, um, again, last time we talked about the psychology of expectation, I want to take this idea just one step further, and I'm going to tie it into what the problem is if a person has an expectation for happiness in their life and what happens to that person when their expectation of happiness is not coming to fruition. Before we do that, though, I think we need to uh, I think we need to spend some time talking about philosophical components of happiness. Uh, philosophy is, after all, um, foundational to everything that we do. Uh, philosophy um, has been one of my favorite subjects. Uh, I started studying it uh, on my own, just as like a matter of personal interest. And then my academic advisor, when I was an undergraduate student, um, I was trying to find out what my minor should be. And, uh, he gave me like biology statistics and I was like, no, thank you. And then when he told me I should do philosophy, that that was a really good minor with psychology, I was already studying philosophy on my own time, bless my heart. And so then I declared it my minor. Um, so I'm, I graduated with my undergraduate degree in psychology with a minor in philosophy. Honestly, some of my philosophy classes have been some of the best philosophy classes that I have ever taken. Uh, my intro to philosophy class, the code at, at the university I went to it was philosophy 110, just an introductory philosophy course. That was one of my favorite classes of all time. Anytime I have students in any of my classes at university, I always tell them that that is like a class that they have to take. And the professor that they should take philosophy 110 from just my personal experience, Brian Merrill, one of the best, um, 
professors I've ever had. Uh, my other class that I took in philosophy that I absolutely cherished and adored was uh, ethics. And I took that from another one of my um, favorite professors, Ross Barron. Both of these individuals have PhDs in philosophy and they are brilliant people. So um, philosophy 110 and ethics, those were two of the best classes I ever took. Um, there's a lot of really good classes that I took, but those two ones had a huge impact on me personally, intellectually, spiritually, you name it. Um, and that's the thing that's fun about philosophy classes as a, as a whole. I mean, talk about discovering new ways of thinking about anything and everything. Now, my ethics class in particular uh, had a required textbook that is one of the few textbooks I've read from uh, from front to cover more than once. Uh, and it's called uh, The Fundamentals of Ethics. Uh, I'll include a link to this book um, in the description of the episode, um, in the, the summary of the episode. So if, if anybody's interested in reading this book, um, they can absolutely... Uh, check it out because it's one of the best books I've ever like read, especially for academic purposes. I mean, the thing that's so cool about this book is it goes through a lot of ethical philosophies and it does like a pro section of that theory. And then the next chapter is like antagonizing it. So you really get to see like some perspectives that support the philosophy and then you get a perspective that antagonizes the philosophy. And as the student of the book, you kind of get to choose for yourself um, where you stand uh, on this um, particular philosophy class or this particular, not class, uh, philosophical perspective or position. Um, now, one of the major points that the author of this book does make uh, is that you'll be hard pressed to find a person who is not interested in somehow making their lives better. And we can actually list a few things that like we can directly observe that do make our lives better. For example, clean water, uh, access to medical care, safer communities, money, uh, and so forth. All of these things help us achieve something and they help us live better lives, which is good. But the problem with all of these things, according to these philosophers, is that they're a means to an end. In other words, these are not things that make for a good life or a better life in and of themselves. They pave the way to a good life. Um, so all these things that we refer to that make life better the philosophical terminology is going to be that these things aren't good in and of themselves. They're a means to an end. In other words, they're instrumental goods. And that's the, the philosophical uh, concept. It's instrumental. It's not an end in and of itself. Um, so some philosophers are actually going to argue and they're going to say that we shouldn't base our lives and our existence off of things that are instrumentally good. Uh, we shouldn't be basing the value of our life off of things that are a means to an end. What some philosophers are interested in is what is an end in and of itself? What is intrinsically valuable? What is something that we should pursue 
for its own sake for its own sake so in case this is confusing we don't want to look at water as the ultimate end of our life like i don't live to drink water water is important and it's good for me but it's only good for me because it helps me sustain something better it's instrumental a roof over my head helps me live a better life but only because it protects me from the cold danger and so forth like i don't live to have a roof over my head having a roof over my head helps me pursue things that are more intrinsically valuable. Uh, a roof over my head is not the end. It's a means to an end. Money is just a means to an end as well. I only value money because it lets me buy things that I want and need, but what I want and need is only instrumental to this ultimate end. So we return to this question. What is the ultimate end and unfortunately, if you're going to answer this question, um, ultimately, it depends on the philosophy that you're currently reading at the time, uh, because there's going to be a lot of different perspectives um, about what is an end in and of itself. And so we're going to be talking about one specific philosophy um, real quick. Uh, and this philosophy is called hedonism. And that's a weird name. So I just want to break down a few, a few components before we start talking about hedonism, what it stands for, uh, and everything like that. So again, this I first read about hedonism in my ethics class. So the first thing that we should understand about hedonism is that it's an ethical philosophy. That means that hedonists, who believe, people who believe in hedonism, are going to say that this is an ethical or good or moral way to live. It's implying something that we should or something that we ought to do. A good life, a moral life is a hedonistic life. You should live this way. It's not just like a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. For the true hedonist, this is going to say you ought to live this way. This is what you morally should do. This is what you morally should pursue. Um, so... Again, a good life, a moral life is a hedonistic life. Hedonists believe you ought to live in such a way that contributes to this outcome. The second thing I think we should consider, again, is that their philosophy, hedonists are going to say that their philosophy is not instrumental. It's not a means to an end. Uh, what the hedonists claim as the good and moral life is the ultimate outcome of a moral life. Um, it's worth pursuing for its own sake. It's not a means to an end. Again, this brings us back to that idea of something that's intrinsically valuable. So that's the second thing. Hedonists are going to say their perspective is offering something that is intrinsically valuable. Okay, so hedonism saying this is how we ought to live. And hedonists are saying this is worth pursuing for its own sake. So what is the philosophy of hedonism? According to hedonists, the life worth living is the life that is happy. Okay? The life worth living is the life that is the happy life. A good life, a moral life is a happy life and worth pursuing for its own sake. And a life without happiness is not a good life. The happier we are, the better our life is. This feature of happiness, according to hedonists, is intrinsically valuable, and anything that we do or have that contributes to our happiness is instrumental. A good life is full of pleasure and free of pain. And this is where the claim can get kind of radical. 
Um, that means like no matter what it is, if something contributes to your well-being, then you should follow that path. No one can tell you what you should or shouldn't do to determine to find your happiness. All that matters is the end itself, which is whether you are happy or not. Instrumentally good things, as long as it's contributing to your well-being, you should pursue that. So literally, if you were to push a hedonist into a corner and you say, well, what about someone who um, requires uh, inflicting or receiving physical pain for arousal? Well, according to the hedonist, if that makes them happy, if that contributes to their well-being, you can't tell them that they shouldn't do that because for them, that's what brings them pleasure. That's what brings them happiness. Um, so a lot of times, too, it's like, well, I mean, I, I guess this is getting kind of just a little bit beyond the scope of this episode. But what this is saying is all behaviors are relative. Like there's no such thing as a behavior that's inherently right or wrong in and of itself, uh, we can only ascertain the moral value of behaviors if they contribute to our well-being or not. And for a full-blown hedonist, if something contributes to your well-being, then it's moral for you to do because you should be pursuing happiness and pleasure for its own sake, regardless of what you have to do to get there. So the basis of this philosophy, everything you should do should be things that contribute to your well-being and happiness. The only thing worth pursuing in this life for its own sake is relative to you. Nobody can tell you how you ought to live, only that you ought to live happily. And you're the one who determines what will bring you uh, well-being and happiness. Now, so that kind of summarizes... Uh, the ethical position of hedonism. Um, and it's kind of interesting because if you can find any system, organization, or set of beliefs that's not free of criticism or that has good counter arguments from one situation to another, please hit me up and let me know. Um, I have yet to find any perspective on life that isn't criticized um, by somebody in some way or another. Um, so naturally, that means that hedonistic perspectives um, are not free of criticism. So we'll take just a short little break here um, before we start going into some counter arguments of hedonism and what it stands for. All right, so let's think about this for just a moment. Is happiness really all that matters? The author of the uh, Fundamentals of Ethics lays out a series of arguments that go against hedonistic com uh, claims, and I think that they're worth talking about. Um, my favorite ones that he lays out include the, the paradox of hedonism, false happiness, and happiness and autonomy. So we're gonna spend the next little while talking about each of these uh, three different arguments um, in a little bit more detail. And again, that's the paradox of hedonism, false happiness, and happiness and autonomy. All right, the paradox of hedonism. Uh, this first argument is kind of interesting. One of the things that philosophers tend to agree on is that when people fixate on happiness, 
rarely do they ever find it. Um, in other words, sometimes focusing on the means is a better way to find the end instead of focusing just on the end. Now, switching gears just a little bit from uh, philosophy to psychology, um, psychologists will talk about this mental mechanism that they call the ironic process of mental control. Simply stated, by trying so hard for a particular outcome, you ironically end up with the opposite one. Uh, for example, if I told you to not think about pink elephants, your efforts to stop thinking about pink elephants ends up making you think about pink elephants. And more practical examples include dating. And I can't really relate to this because it's never happened to me before. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I can absolutely relate to this. But sometimes you would try so hard to impress, uh, in my case, impress a girl that you'd end up not impressing her. In fact, you'd end up doing the opposite by trying to look so smooth and so cool. You end up looking like an idiot. Uh, I think sometimes this is why people have no problem getting people they aren't interested in to like them because they aren't trying so dang hard, right? When you just let things happen naturally, uh, those connections become a little bit more authentic and much more appealing to the person that you're trying to persuade. Instead of analyzing every move, every joke, every outfit, every scent, every fragrance, you just let things happen and then the romance kind of works out more likely for you as opposed to, you know, trying so hard uh, to get someone to be interested in you, you end up just scaring them away. Um, at any rate, uh, the ironic process of mental control has tons of relevant applications in our life. We could probably honestly spend an entire uh, episode on this podcast just talking about the ironic process of mental control. Um, but, uh, let's for now, just tie that to happiness. So just like philosophers say that people who fixate on happiness are rarely likely to find it. I think psychologists have found a mental process that shares the same message. And that's by focusing so hard on happiness. Ironically, you, um, end up more unhappy. So this is the paradox of hedonism by saying that happiness is the ultimate end worth pursuing for its own sake, people become more miserable when they're trying to find it. And they end up not ever really finding it because even when you start thinking about it a little bit more theoretically and psychologically, understanding truly what happiness is becomes an extremely difficult task. I'd argue in a lot of ways, we, we don't really know what happiness is or what ultimately at the end of the day, end of the day causes happiness conclusively. Um, and so we're left like chasing unicorns sometimes when we place this idea of happiness so much that we're, we're like cats chasing our tails or dogs chasing our, chasing our tails, whatever, whatever animal you're more comfortable, uh, making look ridiculous. Um, uh, you're just going round and around and around trying to catch something that you ultimately will never be able to find. So now switching gears away from the paradox of hedonism, let's go to another fascinating argument, and that is the argument of false happiness. 
I remember having a huge fat crush on this girl. Uh, if I'm being fair, honestly, I'd probably have to concede that it was more than just a little crush. It was like total obsession. And I was making, you know, steady progress, but nothing like quote unquote awesome had happened yet. Um, there was just some like, you know, lots of flirting, lots of like, you know, hints on there that it was going somewhere, but like nothing romantic or intimate or anything like that. And so I remember one night, uh, I had a dream about this girl and that shouldn't sound super weird because we often have dreams about stuff that's on our mind during our waking life. So I had a dream, uh, that I was with this girl and we had held hands and I was so excited. I couldn't believe it, it was like a dream come true. I was so happy. And then I woke up and I hated realizing that my moment of euphoria was a delusion conjured up by my sleeping brain. And that sucked because I, I like, I thought I had succeeded. I thought I had gotten this person to truly reciprocate a romantic interest in me. And in my dream, I was so happy, but my dream was a fantasy and it wasn't real and it didn't happen. And so there's my fantasy world and then there's what was happening in real life. Now, just to kind of hopefully you'll you'll see where I'm going with this uh, particular example in just a minute. Just think of two people. Okay, imagine one, two women, okay? The first woman is a happily married woman with a faithful husband. She's happy, she's happily married, and her husband is faithful. The second woman, imagine her being ignorantly happy because she thinks her husband is faithful when in reality, he's not. Considering these two people, the happily married woman with a faithful with a faithful husband or an ig ignorantly happy woman with an unfaithful husband, who would you rather be? I should take a poll for my listeners, but I'm not sure how fruitful that would be since so far today is uh, October 2nd. So far, only two of you have voted on which theme of the merit mindset you liked most. Please go back and vote. That would be fantastic. But if I was to do this poll, I would be willing to bet that uh, most of you would probably prefer to be the happily married woman with the, uh, with the faithful husband. Why? Why would you want, why would most of us want to be that person? Because we would rather our lives not be a fantasy and we would rather have it be based on reality. But if you're a hedonist, a true full-blown hedonist, why does it matter? Both of these women are happy. One's happy in their authenticity and the other one's happy in their ignorance. From a hedonistic standpoint, who are we to say who's better off and who isn't if happiness, regardless of how it's obtained, is the ultimate end of life? And again, answering that why question, most of us would probably say that artificial, fake, or false happiness isn't as important as reality. Now, we can't bring up this particular point without talking about a very fascinating movie uh, called The Matrix. Um, you really only need to see the first one because the next two, well, if you even want to say that there was three more after the first one, um, the, uh, the next two were kind of meh, and I didn't even bother seeing the fourth one. Um, but the first Matrix movie is so good. 
Um, and if you don't appreciate the first Matrix movie, you should take an introductory philosophy class from a dope professor and then watch it after that class. You'll appreciate it a heck of a lot more. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with The Matrix, let's just get a little philosophical pushing pause on the discussion of The Matrix because there was a philosopher who came up with this uh, thought experiment. Um, and this philosopher's thought experiment is what served as the basis and motivation, uh, inspiration, not motivation, inspiration for the, uh, the Matrix movies. And this philosopher, he's since passed away, but his name was Robert Nozick. And he came up with this thought experiment uh, that he called the experience machine. Um, and the basis of this thought experiment was, what if you could be hooked up to a machine without knowing that you were hooked up to a machine? And you could have this machine pump your brain with all the pleasurable experiences your heart desires. And again, it's important to realize you wouldn't know that you were in a machine and your life would be full of pleasure and happiness. But it wouldn't be real. Who would want to be hooked up to that machine? Now, again, it'd be interesting to take another poll on this episode, but uh, I won't do that. So just, just think about that for a moment. Would you rather be hooked up to a machine or would you rather have your experience be based on reality? Uh, in the past, would I just kind of tying it back to how I introduced this argument, uh, would I have wanted to just have had a dream where this girl was also romantically interested in me or would I want her to be interested in me in real life? Like she could have interest in me in a fantasy world or she could have interest in me in real life. Which one would I prefer? So, the Matrix, going back to the movie now, The Matrix is kind of based on this idea that all of our experience is fed to us by machines. And in The Matrix movie, there's several characters who believe that being hooked up to these machines is not how humans flourish and they escape into the real world. Uh, but when you get into the real world that they escape into, by and large, that means no beauty, no fine wine, no delicious food, and little to no pleasure but at least their experience is based in reality. So this is where it gets really interesting in my opinion, because there's one character in that movie named Cypher. And as I see it, Cypher represents the hedonistic philosophy. And there's the scene in the movie where he's sitting at the sitting at a table uh, with the villains of the show, trying to make a deal because he's escaped into the real world. He wants to, to make a, a deal with these bad guys where he will betray his friends if he can get hooked back up, hooked back up to the matrix. And so the scene cuts to him sitting at this, like what I would assume to be like a five-star restaurant. And he's cutting into this delicious looking steak. And he, he gets this big piece of steak on his fork and he, he holds the, the fork in front of his face with the steak on it. And he says something to the effect of like, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After all these years, do you know what I realize? And then he puts the steak in his mouth and he starts chewing on it. And you can just hear this delicious meat just tearing in between his jaws as he bites into it. And he lets out this huge sigh and he goes, ignorance is bliss. In other words, Looking at Robert Nozick's experience machine, Cypher would be like, no, hook me up to the machine so I could experience all the pleasures in the world. 
ignorance is bliss. My reality can be based on fantasy. All that matters is that I'm experiencing this pleasure and happiness and everything like that. Um, so again, I would wager that most of us would not want to be hooked up to Robert Nozick's uh, experience machine. Um, and it's interesting to me because as I see it, this is a thought experiment used to challenge the logic that happiness and pleasure is an end in and of itself. Robert Nozick is saying, no, the hedonistic perspective, excuse me, is wrong. So just to kind of summarize, summarize uh, the argument of false happiness, uh, this argument claims that life isn't just about pleasure or happiness. Because we can see from this perspective that illusionary happiness isn't as meaningful as real happiness. And this means that our overall well-being isn't based off of happiness. It also must, must be based off of some kind of reality. All right, so far we've talked about the paradox of hedonism, the argument of false happiness, and now we are going to move to the third philosophical argument against hedonism, which is centered on happiness and autonomy. Sometimes philosophers use words that people aren't super familiar with or comfortable with. So just in case you are not familiar or comfortable with the word autonomy, think of autonomy as an individual's ability to make choices freely. Um, that, that's, that's essentially all it is, is just free will, uh, people's ability to make choices and everything like that. Now, uh, one of the best literary demonstrations of how autonomy might be more valuable than happiness is from a very famous novel called Brave New World. Uh, if you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it just because it's so interesting. But just as kind of like a cliff note, high level overview of like one of the major premises of the book, imagine a society where there's this drug called Soma that inhibits your interests, your passions, your goals, uh, your desires for relationships and everything like that. Just imagine you were never allowed to watch movies or read books uh, just in case they might upset you. Um, you're not allowed to have close relationships and friendships to prevent you from suffering uh, heartache and possibly rejection. Um, you're never allowed to develop interests or pursue goals in case you failed and had to deal with that frustration. Um, a, I can't imagine anyone truly wanting to live in a society like that all for the sake of happiness, the absence of pain, the absence of heartache, the absence of disappointment, the absence of um, failure. Again, most people would probably choose not to pursue that kind of a society because some of the most meaningful things in, in the world are accompanied with heartache and risk. And it's interesting because those things that are so meaningful and so valuable, um, the heartache and the potential failure is worth the risk. In other words, most of us would probably choose our autonomy over our happiness. Um, and again, that fundamental claim challenges the essence of the hedonistic viewpoint that happiness is intrinsically valuable. 
that it should be placed as an end for itself. And it's like, well, no, uh, maybe happiness shouldn't be chosen over your freedom because there are things that are uh, more intrinsically valuable than happiness is. So it's kind of interesting to pose the scenario uh, and argument in question form. Would you rather be forced to be happy or would you rather be able to make choices and decisions about yourself, about your own life? Um, and again, I'm going to assume that most of us would probably opt for our own ability uh, to make choices. And so that um, that kind of emphasizes just like, would you rather uh, be um, forced to be happy or would you rather um, make your own choices? And that just very quick coverage uh, sums up the argument of happiness over autonomy. Okay, we're going to step away um, from some of the more philosophical uh, considerations of happiness um, being the end-all, be-all purpose of life. Um, I think these are very interesting philosophical challenges uh, to the claim that we should be happy and that happiness is intrinsically valuable um, because there's some pretty solid arguments that happiness isn't as valuable as other things. Now, Shifting Gears, uh, a book that whenever people ask me, like, what's your favorite psychological book that you've ever read or, or pertaining to that, or just what's one of the most important books that you've ever read? Um, my mind always goes to a Jewish psychiatrist um, by the name of Viktor Frankl. And I feel like in the social sciences circle, this might be a little bit of a cliche uh, to say that this is one of your favorite books. Um, but... It absolutely is one of my favorite books. And, you know, there's a lot of books that I could recommend where I'm like, no, you you really need, you should read this book. It's a really good book. But Man's Search for Meaning is one of those books that I just, for me personally, I put at a much higher level. Like, this is one of those books where I'm like, it's not that you should read it, it's that you need to. Uh, and this is one of the few books that I tell people, like, you need to read this book um, before you die. Uh, you're doing yourself a huge disservice by not reading this book before you die. So again, it's it's Viktor Frankl's book. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. I have an old copy of it in my hands right now. Um, I'm not sure what the number's at. Maybe I should have done a little bit more research. But on my copy that I bought probably back in 2009, maybe 2010 or 11, why don't we just say 2012 just to be safe? Um, there's over 12 million copies sold. It's a very popular book. It's a very profound book. And it just had like the biggest paradigm shift uh, out of any book that I've ever read before. And it's interesting to me, for those of you who don't know who Viktor Frankl was, he was a Jewish psychiatrist who survived um, the concentration camp Auschwitz. And this was during, uh, obviously, World War II. And Auschwitz, I want to say, was regarded... Oh, I got to check my history facts. Crap, I can't remember. Um, I think it was revered as like the second most deadly concentration camp. And Viktor Frankl, uh, he survived um, Auschwitz. 
and he um one of the main main observations that he kind of came up with being in the concentration camp he he said that there was a noticeable difference between um people who lived and people who died and the people who lived were people who had something to live for they had some kind of meaning or purpose driving them to survive and to thrive and everything like that um and long story short, he he gets out of Auschwitz and everything like that, and he started his therapeutic approach called logotherapy. And logotherapy was all geared towards trying to help people find meaning in their problems. Two particular case studies that I uh, have heard about that I think, excuse me, that I think are just really profound is there's there's two of them and i don't recommend anybody who is not a therapist engage in this kind of dialogue victor frankel was a psychiatrist he was a mental health professional and he worked with uh people who were struggling i personally would never say this i don't think uh to a person in a therapy who needed therapy i guess is all i'm trying to say but one of his clients was suicidal and uh one day when he was sitting down with one of his clients, Victor Frankel essentially asked this person, why haven't you killed yourself yet? And that wasn't like a daring gesture. Uh, Victor Frankel used that as an opportunity to help this person find the meaning that was keeping him alive. And it obviously wasn't happiness. There was a deeper purpose. There was a deeper sense or value to his life that he was able to identify through that exercise. And the other one, uh, it's something to the effect of there was this older gentleman whose uh, half a century long wife had passed away and he was super depressed and sad and asking that question that most of us ask when we go through a loss like that where, you know, why couldn't it have been me? Why did it have to be her? She had so much more to offer, so much more to value. And while Viktor Frankl is sitting down with this client uh, he says, well, would you have rather you died instead so that she could live feeling the feelings that you're feeling now? And for this particular client, like it was like a light bulb went off in his head. And for him, he found meaning in his life because he was able to spare his, his wife um, the heartache that he was feeling um, from her being lost. And, and anyway, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is just full of so many pearls of wisdom uh, that are just so invaluable to me. But I love this particular section. Uh, and he's quoting the work of a psychology professor from the University of Georgia. And uh, she wrote an article on Viktor Frankl's approach to logotherapy and and this is one of the things that she had to say, and this work is cited in his Man's Search for Meaning book. She says, our current mental hygiene philosophy stresses the idea that people ought to be happy, that unhappiness is a symptom of maladjustment. Such a value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable unhappiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. And in another paper, she expressed the hope that logotherapy may help counteract certain unhealthy trends in the present day culture of the United States, where the incurable sufferer is given very little opportunity to be proud of his suffering 
and to consider it ennobling rather than degrading so that he's not only unhappy, but also ashamed of being unhappy. And that's the end quote there. Uh, I find that fascinating and maybe you should rewind it a few seconds so that you can reread that again. But not only are people unhappy, but now they're plagued with being unhappy about the fact that they're unhappy because of this expectation and desire to be happy all the time. And it's just interesting to me because when you patho, patho excuse me, when you pathologize unhappiness, you make it worse for people who are unhappy. Unhappiness is painted as this terrible way of life so that when people are expecting happiness, but they're unhappy, it makes them more miserable. Is happiness your expectation for life? What if you don't have it? You're more miserable. I try to, to use this uh, dialogue in my classes with my students. I ask them to consider two possible students in this, in this little discussion in class. Um, both of these students are unhappy. One of the students is ex has expected to be happy while the other one did not expect to be happy. Who's worse off? You tie this into the psychology of expectation and the student who expected happiness, who now has a gap between their expectations and their reality is now more unhappy and miserable than the other student who did not expect happiness, who consequently does not have a gap between their expectations and reality and is now better off. Does that make sense? Again, maybe, maybe rewind that little segment of the episode just to try and summarize it. You got two students, both of them are unhappy. One expected to be happy and one of them didn't expect to be happy, but they're both unhappy. The student who wanted happiness more is now worse off than the student who didn't place high value on it. Um, so setting happiness again, trying to tie in these episodes, the, the happiness as your expectation for life, philosophically speaking, may not even be rational. But psychologically, there seems to be some evidence that supports the idea that wanting to be happy is more likely going to make you unhappy, and you're going to be even more unhappy when you realize you're unhappy. So again, this is there's uh, psychological literature um, that supports this claim, and they 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 refer to it as the paradox of seeking happiness. It sounds a lot like the paradox of hedonism. That's more of a philosophical discussion and psychology uh, is going to be utilizing more empirical strategies to uh, make these claims. Um, there's a lot to be said for people who value happiness, especially when life doesn't go well or when they're experiencing a stressful event. So what these researchers found is that people who tend to place a lot of value on happiness, but then have to endure a hardship for one reason or another, they experience more dissatisfaction and unhappiness than people who don't place as much value on happiness. So if you place high value on happiness, you're more likely to reap unhappiness. So paradox of hedonism, paradox of uh, pursuing happiness, the outcome's the same, whether you're speaking in philosophical terminology um, or psychological terminology. And I, I think about all of this stuff psychologically and philosophically, 
And I just even in pondering my own experiences for life, perhaps we need to remove happiness from our expectations so that we can enjoy our life when we're happy as well as when we are unhappy. And that's one of the things that I love about man's search for meaning, especially in that excerpt that I just uh, read to you. You know, sometimes uh, people need the opportunity to be proud of their suffering. Um, But if all you care about is happiness all the time, you're not going to find much value um, in your suffering. So remove um, that expectation from your life and you'll be happier no matter what happens to you as opposed to expecting happiness and being unhappy when inevitably throughout your life, you will experience times where you're unhappy. I feel like I'm saying the word happy too much. It's making me twist my words and my thoughts. So whether we are talking psychologically or philosophically, there's a lot of reason to think that maybe happiness isn't what we should be putting so much emphasis on. Maybe focusing on being happy is doing more damage than it is good. Maybe we need to stop thinking so much about ourselves. So at the conclusion of this episode, let's revisit that interesting question. Should you be happy?